Welcome to Postwave. You're here with Eric and Trevor, and we're joined again by special guest Walker T. Roman, artist extraordinaire here on Martha's Vineyard. Hello, thank you. Uh, nice, nice intro. <laughs> So yeah, it's great. Uh, nice to be back. Thank you so much. Pleasure having you. So, uh, Walker, could you just introduce yourself a little bit and talk about your experience as an artist? As uh, I know you've done a lot of beautiful representational art, but when I first uh, encountered your art, it was all completely abstract. It was your uh, black and white grayscale uh uh, how would you describe like uh, abstract forms, uh, textures? Yeah, yeah, I, I would say that those those works are um, kind of like uh, like non-objective paintings. Um, if you kind of want to like like uh, identify them like in a genre, they would you'd call I'd call them like gestural abstraction. Um, yeah. So what brought you from uh, painting things that you could say this is a thing to? to that yeah it's interesting i think i think that like and maybe this is uh reflects uh reflects another narrative too but that um uh when i when i was uh first starting to take painting like seriously um we'll say like you know uh realizing it was something that i wanted to do uh and pursue you know with diligence and all that kind of stuff um my initial instinct was to um i don't know was was always towards things that uh were kind of focused on mark making um and were focused on like the presence of uh being able to like read the presence of the hand in in its making um and not necessarily like focusing on accuracy um uh and like you know making something that was entirely true to life but making something um that like the materials themselves had their own story to tell um regardless of maybe what the subject was um so i was i think i was i was really interested initially from the get-go or maybe i was I was, just this, I, was I was like seduced by the expression of material mm. um and it was always like um like you know i was i was i was painting a lot but i was really seduced by clay for example and i and i learned a lot of like mark making through clay and kind of um I feel like that really informed my painting a lot um, and, and still does. Um, and then um, I think that I actually, I, I, I paint, I, I kind of painted that way uh, when I was studying at art school for, for a long time. I, I was doing a lot of abstract work. Um, I was making some like very, very loose, very gestural um, representational work um, that was like charcoal and and uh, like watercolor that was very large scale. And it was like very much about um, like the gesture of the hand and things like that. Um, but uh, I think that actually, you know, painting in a more uh, like objective fashion, like in i.e. like making something that's recognizable and trying to hold to that and kind of emulating reality in some way. Um, was actually just something that I felt like I needed, I needed to like get a foothold on just how to make a dang painting. Um, Cause I think I, I kind of came out of art school. Um, you know, the, the, 
I came out of art school knowing how to talk about painting um, and knowing how to talk about art. Um, and they don't really teach you how to paint there, um, which is fine because everyone's going to figure out their own way to do it anyway. Um, so what they kind of give you is a common language, uh, how to talk about those things. So that when I say, you know, when I talk to another painter who, who, whose work is completely different from mine, when I talk, when I say like, oh, you know, the chroma of that, um, that color could be a little more intense they know what I'm talking about, right? Or I say, oh, well, that's a value problem, not a drawing problem. Like they know what I'm talking about, right? Um, and um, I think that like what I needed to do was like, I kind of came out of art school and I was like, I know all these things about art and I know all of these things about painting, but I don't really know reliably how to make one. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in a way that like, in from like a super practical standpoint, like, I don't like, how do I make one that like, one, like reliably, like looks visually appealing, like two is like physically stable, <laughs> like is going to like last longer than like a semester in my studio, you know? Um, and like, I got really into uh, uh, like the archival nature of materials and, and making things that were really sturdy and would last a long time and that kind of stuff. Um, and I think that like just making um, uh, representational work was just like a way for me to not think about a lot of things. I was like, I'm going to make some landscape paintings because I know that like I can just, you know, take that concern off of my table for right now of like what exactly it is that I'm painting. And I'm just going to focus on like learning how to make a durable oil painting. Um, or I'm going to focus on how to, uh, how to uh, better understand my control of like edges or how to build three-dimensional space. And so in, in, so in a lot of ways, like me making like landscape work was uh, a way to just kind of not worry about my subject too much while I was pursuing these other technical proficiencies. Um, and, um, and then I started when, you know, the work that you saw um, a couple of years ago, um, I think came out of a return back to my, uh, my interest in like the presence of the hand and materiality um, after feeling like I frankly, like kind of knew what the fuck I was doing finally, um, where I'm like, okay, I, I understand now, um, you know, what needs to happen in my studio when I, uh, am going to go from making 12 inch paintings, you know, to eight foot paintings. Like I've gone through that practice a few times and now I know what I need to do. Um, and so, you know, kind of for me, going back to making uh, non-representational work or abstract work was a way of, um, I think of getting back to the thing that had initially like seduced me into painting in the first place. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, um, yeah. and that's, and, and, it's, and it's a place that like, um, you know, is uh, for me feels like a, um, uh, a much more like sustainable place to work from um, now. And I feel like I can, um, uh, I don't know, I feel like I can talk about anything in that space versus, um, you know, I don't know how I would, uh, I don't know how I would talk about like 
self empathy or like the uh uh like questioning like our perception uh through addressing like a landscape i'm not sure how i would do that um or that it might be that might be a bit of a red heron um or something like that um it might be a little confusing to to navigate that but i'm sure it could be done but that's not really like where i feel like i could do that you think that the medium of portraying a thing gets in the way of the the core of what you want to try to express um i I don't think so i just don't think that it's the way that i want to do it um you know i think that there's like some really fantastic work um actually a a a good friend of mine um opal deruvo i feel like does uh you know their whole practice is is rooted in uh figuration and and representing bodies and figures um but there's something that is like innately tied to perception in that work um but that's just not the work that i can do so maybe just to uh prime the pump here a little bit i'd like to read aloud uh your notes from listening to our first abstraction oh sure cool all right Dig the hair, by the way, Trevor. Oh, thank you. You got a real, really solid Justin Bieber thing. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that's why I cut it. <laughs> it's looking good. I think I think it's more like like seventies uh, like seventies folk outfit, you know. Yeah, and you're like that. you're like maybe you know like like you're like it's like the first the first time that the folk outfit's on TV or something like yeah yeah. I like it. yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah. So Walker's notes uh, live from our first session of the abstraction episodes. We have. Um, oh, is there somewhere I can listen to more of Trevor's music? By the way, I enjoyed that composition featured on your show. Oh, I did. <laughs> I did very much. I found your, I found your SoundCloud. I creeped it pretty hard. Um. Okay, so he says the way you describe peeking on psychedelics reminds me of my time during a meditation retreat. The practice gives you the sensual experience of the universe's ever-changing nature, as opposed to just the intellectual understanding of that fact. I like the idea that language is the tool of meaning that we're all constantly building and adding to in perpetuity. I'm with Trevor that we can't tie psychedelics to reality. I think of psychedelics as revealing our own mechanism of perception. It's like staring in the mirror. I think there isn't a near infinite set of visualizations. There's actually very few and they're all tied to how our nervous system operates. You are seeing your own nervous system, which is of a specific construction. Damn. <laughs> that's cool. that, I would like to talk more about that at some point, because I think that's... that's... Yeah, there's like at least like three episodes in what you've just said. So yeah, there's, um, there's, <laughs> there, there's some, like, some interesting... Uh, some interesting theories about that too that i like i'm not going to do a good job citing at all um which i am sad about but um but that's like kind of a recurring theme for me in the way that i think about uh abstractions relationship to artwork and those kind of things but but yeah we can we can come back to that yeah 
spectra were functioning as language. I think this is again talking in regard to my visualization when I was on acid, replacing mm. mm-hmm. people's souls or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the spectra were functioning as language. When I look at a person, I don't literally see words around them, but that's how I understand them to be. In that sense, the spectra was just a different type of abstraction your mind was using to describe and understand the world around it. Regarding the yes lyrics, I think that starts to get at the space between form and perception. The lyrics are being used for their form, raw sound, without their content, which is the meaning. We as the listener have no choice but to interpret them beyond just the sounds. We all have baggage or lenses that we perceive through, and in using lyrics that way, he's opening the opportunity for many different types of interpretation. This is how I think of non-representational art. I like the duality here if you've got like your description of representational and non-representational. Yeah, yeah, that's something that like for me uh this has been like a useful uh metric or a, maybe a useful uh uh way to think about like navigating um what what do we call abstraction? What does it mean, right? Um and like where where do things exist in relationship to it? Yeah, I think I think like uh, for me something that was really useful like really early on as a visual artist was um basically just like getting a working definition of what abstraction is. Um and you know, we kind of like interacted with it initially like visually as like a style or a <clears throat> with a or a certain era in in art history or something like that. Um but realizing that like it's not something that is binary. There's not something that things that are like are abstract or are not abstract, but that really it's like a, a phrase that we use to identify something that exists on a spectrum between uh, like representational or non-representational um, or maybe like objective and then non-objective. Um, and that everything that, uh, that you see exists somewhere on that spectrum. Um, you know, and on, on one end of, uh, like on one end of that spectrum is something that is as true to life as it possibly could be. Um, you know, like painting every hair on the person's face or something like that. Um, and on the other end is like painting a smiley face. Um, and that, that, that is a spectrum of abstraction that exists. Um, and that everything that we see and everything that we make exists somewhere on that spectrum. Um, and that was that early on for me was like a really useful uh, way to to think about that, um, which was actually something that was uh, taught to me by like a comics artist, which was really interesting. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah, which I thought was really cool. Oh yeah, yeah. This has been notes with Walker. That sounds like some stuff I would say. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, cool, cool. Um, yeah. So, do you guys have like a, a place that you are want to start with, or or a, a direction you want to go in or what do you think trevor uh i mean again like there was so much so many great things to talk about in all those notes i kind of wanted to start with with a kind of an art history perspective and just how how people started incorporating abstraction into their their work and why and how it kind of influenced our thinking about art that kind of thing sure um uh it's actually super interesting um 
so in a lot of ways, like uh, abstraction is like the oldest, uh, the oldest art form, right? And you look back at um, uh, like really, really early examples um, of uh, a visual, visual culture and their um, like cave paintings and things that are like just patterns made with um, uh, like animal fat and iron earth pigments. Um, and like patterning is a big one. Um, there's, you know, really, really simple shapes that are repeated like circles or just like lines or kind of like hash, hash patterns or things like that. Um, and, um, you know, and it's, and, and then you also, you know, you also have like uh, representational stuff that's in there, like the Loco caves kind of famously have like these really beautiful, like, uh, like kind of like bison-esque creatures and like maybe like long tooth cats or something like that. Um, but, um, you know, I think, I think that it was something that, that, uh, you know, has existed in, um, you know, across every culture from the beginning of time, really. And you, I think when you, when you really start looking at, um, like pattern design is actually a really interesting place to start looking, um, especially like textile patterns, just because a lot of those are very, very old. Um, and realizing that there's a lot of these patterns that kind of show up again and again and again. Um, and that there's like, uh, you know, textile patterns in uh, Vietnam that have been there for thousands of years that are very, very similar to patterns that have been in like South America for thousands and thousands of years. Um, and, and for me, that's kind of like, um, like a, like a visual Genesis. Um, and, and the similarities between a lot of these like really early examples of visual culture, um, are for me indicative of, uh, like it's, immediate tie to our physiology um and to it's like to our physical bodies um and uh you know there's there's a reason that we uh you know the people in vietnam and the people in south america were kind of making these like uh alternating line patterns that almost look exactly the same and it's because like their physical bodies are almost exactly the same um and and for me that's kind of where that comes from um and uh you know and then you know, as, as like visual technologies got better, um, you know, uh, kind of into, into like the medieval era and into the Renaissance, there's like, um, like great improvements that are like, like the, like early optics start to develop. And then that's really when you start to get, um, uh, like much more lifelike representations or much more, uh, figurative or, or realistic or, um, yeah, like the perspective, the three dimensionality. Yeah, yeah. Like isometric perspective was like, like there was like this, you know, hundred and fifty year long period where everyone was like, "Oh my god, isometric perspective! Holy crap! Let's like put it everywhere, tiles on the floor! Whoa!" You know, um, and um, and and it's interesting because like I think that you know, we we have this idea that um, that the accuracy of drawing or like the ability to represent something accurately visually is a matter of like skill and training. Um, and I think that that's true definitely, but, uh, like when you're practicing it, but I think from like the evolution of visual culture, it was a technology, right? We like, we always had the skills and the abilities to, uh, like render a lifelike face, but we just like hadn't developed the technologies yet to allow us to like see a non-moving image and translate it onto a 2D surface. And it wasn't until really we had kind of like 
like proto lens technologies in um uh like amsterdam um you know in in like the late medieval era that that like really started to even happen um yeah sorry to sorry to interrupt is that what you were talking about when you said optics yeah yeah totally um yeah i think i think that uh like optics um uh like that's that's the reason that you don't see like very very lifelike uh or or like highly accurate representational artwork until that point in history is because we literally didn't have the optical technology to translate things onto a 2d surface with that kind of degree of accuracy wow that's 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 really interesting so it wasn't it's it's different than than photographs right like how how does it actually work yeah there's um so it's it's like a very hotly debated area um of 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 like study um but like like vermeer for example is probably like the most noted notable we like a lot of people we all know who vermeer is for the most part or a lot of people do he was like a <laughs> yeah. uh, so so vermeer <laughs> vermeer is like is like the old dutch master um and is you know it's been debated you know for as long as you know I've as long as there's been debates over how these things were made about like how he made his paintings um and it's kind of come out in like you know maybe the last 15 or 20 years that he was essentially using um this uh kind of like system of mirrors that would allow him to uh put a small mirror directly over his canvas surface um that would uh project what he was looking at like at exactly the right scale onto his canvas so he could like move the mirror over the area he was working on look at it move it to the side paint it in move it over and it, so it's kind of like you know like a being back and forth between like the reality the reflection and the thing that he's painted and it allows him to do that very 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 quickly um and um there's some really cool demonstrations you can actually watch of people who have never painted before using this tool and actually doing a pretty damn good job. Um, so that's that's kind of what I'm talking about when I'm talking about like optics and the history of representation. That is crazy. I had no idea about that. That is nuts. Yeah, wow. yeah. And and when you think about it, it's like it's it it doesn't make any sense that like oh Vermeer just it took until he was born for humanity to create someone that had the ability to perceive reality in this way. Right. It's like no, he had the technology, right? He had the tools. Yeah. Um, and um you know so so we we kind of hit this in, in my opinion we kind of hit this like peak of uh uh like gorgeous representation um in like the kind of like late 1800s um and there's like just this explosion of like the academy painters that are kind of moving back and forth between europe and america um and like they're just like it's it's such this fruitful period for representational artwork um or two to like i should say painting more specifically um and there's just like like hundreds of spectacular representational painters during that time um and they're from all over the place um and then you have like industrialization that happens and um uh there's this you know uh you, you have um also like when industrialization starts picking up, you have like the impressionists that start to arise and like the rise of modernism and then kind of this rejection of the academy and the, the rejection of uh, like what could be like, quote unquote, the right way to paint a picture. Um, and, uh, you know, I think eventually there's all of these trends that are kind of tied up in 
uh, in modernism that kind of push further and further away from that. Um, it's kind of like they're starting to ask the question of like, what what is central to the thing that we're painting? Because, you know, you've talked about like representational um, and, and, and initially it's just like um, you don't have the technology to do accurate representation. But uh, like I was telling you the other night, um, when I was at your wedding, I was talking to Omar Ryan, mm. another incredible artist here on the vineyard. And his work is super detailed and immaculate. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he was talking about the, these same ca cave paintings that you brought up and how often those crude strokes are still better at capturing the essence of what that thing is than any uh, machination any anyone with optics could ever do in in massive detail. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that that's a that's a great example of. Uh, that form being abstracted, you know? Um, and if we're, if we're kind of thinking about um, uh, if abstraction can just be the like omittance of an abundance of information and a distillation of it down to its essence so that we can understand, you know, um, like the Lacoe cave paintings are a beautiful example of that where it's, it's uh, you know, just a few lines really that express like the movement and the weight um and like the volume of this creature one of the things that's really cool about the the Lacoe, the Lacoe uh paintings is they kind of use the uh uh like uneven space of the cave wall to also imply volume of the form which is really cool um and um but that's that's a pretty really beautiful example right of like uh, and the, the only, the only way that I think, uh, that someone maybe can like really do that so elegantly is by spending a ton of time around those animals, you mm -hmm. know, um, that's something that I've always admired in, um, uh, in my wife's drawings, um, in Danielle's drawings, um, of, hey, you could say your wife, dad. I know we got married. <laughs> it's very exciting. Oh, um, congrats. thank you. Um, and so Danielle is, uh, just, just spectacular at drawing um and she i always i always tell people that she has the animals in her hand already and she spent so much time around like specifically around like goats and chickens and like working with these animals and around horses that she like her body and her hand know the animal and just are is able to express like the entire like movement of you know that animal with just a few lines in a way that's like just it's very intimate you know and i think i think of like the the the, the cave paintings work in that same way like, it's a very intimate relationship with that with that subject yeah, yeah. wow yeah yeah yeah, I was, I was gonna say thanks for for correcting my completely Western perspective on the way I asked that question because I was definitely thinking like, oh yeah, you know, people were were d doing realistic stuff from the beginning of time, and then in the 20th century we decided we could do other stuff. Yeah, <laughs> well, what's, what's... but yeah, you're you're totally right. Like I didn't even think about like fabric patterns as being as being abstract, but they they totally are. I mean, there's you know, and, uh, it's an interesting question. You know, why why humans appreciate visual patterns like that when we don't really see anything like that in nature, but like, like zebra stripes are, are one thing or leopard spots, but that's a way more, uh, I don't know, like a regular version of a pattern. It's not like sure. exactly repeating. Sure. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that like, um, 
the reason that we that we enjoy those we enjoy like those patterns so much is because they are um they're expressions of how we think right and how we understand things um mm -hmm. and so we can we can kind of like flip the whole like this i think we can kind of like flip the whole thing on its head where um you know is it that we are using uh um how can i put it um it, you know is, is it that we're using uh abstractions to uh describe something more clearly um or is it just that like that's the way that we ourselves gain clarity and so we impose that upon whatever it is that we're trying to see or we're trying to communicate um mm -hmm. and it's because it's really useful for us uh to just throw out information you know <laughs> um mm. like yeah yeah <clears throat> that's really interesting and and talking about these like uh patterns like like the the weavings and uh also you know the tapestries where it's very arabesque very uh spirals and that kind of thing i've always felt like that kind of imagery is revealing something not only about ourselves but and the way and the way we perceive the world but about how the world fundamentally is constructed um and I know this is maybe something you wouldn't agree with based on our previous conversations mm -hmm. that they uh, like when we're talking about psychedelics, how like maybe that isn't showing something fundamental about the universe. Maybe that's instead showing something about ourselves and the way we perceive the world. And I would completely agree with that, except that I want to add that because we are perceiving the world and perception is central to the way that the world is then by having such an experience we are in a certain sense seeing something fundamental about the world as it is yeah that, that's interesting because you could you could say i mean all, all we all we really know is what we're perceiving right mm -hmm. and so maybe that is all that it means like for the uh, this the structure of the sentence is getting very tangled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe there's no other other sense in which something is real other than that we perceive it that way. You know, maybe 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 consciousness really is the ground layer of reality. Mm. I don't think it is, mm. but it's certainly mm. possible. I, I think it is. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, I think on one hand, it's like it's it's um. I mean, we're we're kind of like rehashing like Plato's cave, right? And there's like mm. the the ultimate answer is like there is no way to know. And uh, the thing that like in in that context i feel like the only useful thing is to uh like continually reroute re yourself in your in your experience and accept mm -hmm. that it is it is reality and that because that's that you can't change that you know okay. um you couldn't you can't like have some kind of intellectual aha and therefore change that experience right that is your experience no matter what mm -hmm. um but but i think that like in in regards to um like what you're talking about like in, in islamic art in particular is a really yeah. great example where there's there's um these uh like kind of like quote unquote sacred geometries and um like a lot of things are are abstractions of natural forms right mm. like flowers and vines and these things like that um which is really interesting there's there's uh um islamic art is actually super super interesting and i do not uh i know just enough about the history of it to find that it's interesting and not enough to actually feel like i can speak to it mm. um but um you know 
in when we when we talk about like uh, that revealing some kind of fundamental nature of like the way that things are constructed, um, I think that's like certainly a possibility. Um, but the other thing that I'm always kind of curious about is the possibility that, um, like, that we're just that's just what we're seeing. Like we are we are uh, we are limited in our own perceptions, and therefore we will see the thing that we know to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so so for example, if we're talking about like um, like the lotus flower is a really great example where there's like all of this beautiful geometry that's all over the lotus flower, and that's something that gets echoed a lot in um, different like designs like all over the world, um, and we it it can be easy for us to say like ah that is some kind of like uh grand organizing principle that i that is being like objectively uh played out in front of my eyes and i can see it right and oh i can i can point to there's this here's the the you know um this golden ratio that's appearing again and all the petals are laid out in this perfectly ordered way and that makes sense and aha that must be uh you know some like uh some sliver of like the grand organizing principle right um but then when, when you kind of like look at it in a lot of other ways well it's like well what happens if you flip it upside down like does it still work that way like well what if you view it from like a 35 degree angle well now you're all your math is off right and um you know what if uh what if it loses a pedal like they lose pedals all the time now it doesn't now your you know your, your pattern doesn't work um and that in a way uh you know we we view the world through systems of order and so we will find them wherever they are in the natural world right and because we kind of have no other option um uh i don't know is that does that kind of like uh, this is it's something that's very difficult to talk about um i'm not sure if i'm doing a good enough job or not yeah that's really really fascinating what do you think trevor yeah, no, we're we're definitely drawn to things that make sense and things that you know we, we're pattern we're pattern finding exactly right? yeah we wanna, yeah we want to see patterns even when they're not there one hundred percent and we want to find the I mean I think it's probably has evolutionary I mean it definitely has evolutionary origins just you know finding finding patterns and understanding your environment will help you know it help you progress as a species and survive as a, as a species so I think I think that makes sense that you know we see we see those patterns wherever they exist yeah yeah certainly. Totally. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's like there's these uh, geometric ideals that we strive for and strive to perceive in the world. Um, And like you said, maybe the actual reality of what we're perceiving doesn't quite match up to that ideal. But uh, in a certain sense, it points to that ideal. and maybe even rarely it may may reach it or maybe it won't but it's kind of like uh when you're tuning an instrument you know and you can have it out of tune and it sounds pretty bad but you get it pretty in tune and at a certain point you can't distinguish the difference between it being completely in tune and being a little little bit off yeah like kind of like it's it's close enough yeah exactly. yeah yeah i get that yeah and so I think that maybe these order, these uh, these patterns that we perceive, that we draw out of the world, uh, you know, that we have to actively seek in order to draw out a lot of the time, I think these patterns may be, in a certain sense, actually there. 
even even though we had to pull it out does that does that make sense no totally yeah and and i i we're we're also kind of defining what we mean by pattern so <laughs> if we if we say it's a pattern then it's a pattern in some in some sense because we we came up with the concept of pattern and we decided <laughs> that certain things were going to be called patterns mm-hmm. and other things mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so i i think yeah i think i think if if a large number of people agree that, that it's a pattern it's probably a, a pattern if one person does then maybe they're just crazy <laughs> <laughs> or if or if it's you know a small number of people then it's a conspiracy <laughs> uh rea- reality reality is defined with it reality is defined by consensus right it's all it's all proof of it's proof of consensus mechanism um yeah i met a woman uh from china who was talking about how in her culture uh there's different uh perceptions on schizophrenic people and uh you know people who have hallucinations and that you know there's no negative connotation whatsoever it's just that the way they perceive it is that these things that i'm perceiving are truth they're real but they're only real for me and i have to uh identify which things are true from are truths only for myself and which truths are shared with other people Wow, yeah, that's really interesting. I do. I definitely knew there were some cultures that were like that with with schizophrenia, but I didn't. I didn't know Chinese culture was one of them. That's that's interesting. It it reminds me of um uh an essay that I was reading about uh like collective dream practices uh recently um that I'm trying to remember what where it was that this person was talking about it um I think it might have been somewhere like some Pacific Island culture um. But there was, uh, they were talking about, anyway, uh, a shared dream practice where, you know, groups of people would go out and they would spend all day together doing whatever it is that they're doing. And they would all come back home. They'd all sleep in the same room. And then, of course, because they've been having, they've been doing the same activities all day together, they have relatively the same dreams, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, because they're, they're living, their waking experience is the same for the large part. And so their, you know, dreaming experiences are going to be largely the same. Um, and but so while while you know waking experience has uh, an objective like what happened right we went to the big tree around the river uh, we climbed it you know you fell off of the first branch but we're okay and then we did something else right like that's an objectively provable experience but in the dream experiences um, everyone's deviates a little bit right um because it's not actually happening um but in this like shared dream practice um everybody who would be living and working together would the next morning always share their dreams and then they would kind of come to this compromise over what happened in the dream because they understand the dream to be just as much of a reality as waking life or they or they they kind of like digest it that way and so you know if one person went to the path you know on the path to the north in their dream the other one went to the path uh in the south you know in their dream well like oh well maybe we actually went to the path you know in the east you know we, we kind of split the difference and we kind of compromise this narrative uh that is like kind of true for both of us um which is really interesting so it kind of reminds me of of that um yeah yeah super super interesting yeah that maybe that has uh parallels to what we're doing all the time in waking life yeah yeah (laughs) yeah wait so i i guess i was a little bit confused about how that that would work how wouldn't they just some have sometimes have like completely different dreams every night or or like weren't even 
related at all? Um, I, I guess that that was something that was like very, very uncommon. Oh. Yeah. Um, and, and there, they, there was, I mean, this was a, it wasn't like a, a, a super deep, this was like a, you know, 15 or 20 page essay. It wasn't super, super involved. Um, but, uh, they didn't really talk about, yeah, reconciling those kinds of like largely divergent, uh, experiences. Yeah. That, that kind of makes sense to me because, uh, from my own dream practice, writing down my dreams in the morning and getting very, uh, detailed about that, um, you know, you start to realize that what you remember in the morning is just a sliver of what you experienced a tiny sliver and you dreamed about so so many things mm -hmm. but if you go into a dream the night before with the expectation that you're going to dream about certain things then you almost certainly will yeah yeah if that's part of the culture of this collective dreaming experience of you know going into this like hey we're going to dream and compare uh the things that we dream about then you're going to remember those dreams that you had that pertain to your experience shared with these other people. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, that, that's a whole other interesting like dream. I mean, like, like dream culture is its own uh, super interesting subject. Um, but um, I don't know. I don't know if we, if we wanted to like um, refocus a little bit more about like the ways that we kind of use uh, abstraction in different contexts. Um, I thought it was really interesting. You guys were talking the other episode about, um, uh in the the programming language um trevor like your first your first like interaction with the idea of an abstraction um in a programming language um and um when you were kind of describing that i was thinking a lot about like uh uh that kind of uh the like spectrum that i kind of talked about earlier about on one end is a smiley face and on the other hand is like the actual person's face and um because what you what kind of what you're able to do is you're able to um in this programming language solve the problem and then like condense it and put it aside and be like okay i'm going to instead of like re-describing um this like entire person's face to you i'm just gonna like draw a smiley face on it and like put it aside and now we know that that is representational of like of a person right um oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um and it, it's kind of working in the same way it's like this 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 condensing of information um so that it's more usable um and i think that we can do that a lot of times um like a cartoon is that in 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 a lot of ways like visually um where it's uh um the simpler that a cartoon becomes uh you know the faster you can draw it um the kind of more insane it's easier to make it do more and more insane things um you know you can stretch it out you can make it explode you can you can shrink it down it can be elastic you can do all these kinds of things with it um and but it also becomes more relatable which i think is really interesting right where a um like if i just draw a smiley face like that could be anybody right um whereas if i'm like painting you a portrait it's like a specific person um and uh i think that that's that's i don't know do, do you feel like there's there's a parallel that that you've maybe run into like other parallels of like with those ideas in programming or something like that um i don't know if it, uh, this might just be a dead end but it's interesting because you could i mean a smiley face that's literally just like a circle with two dots and then like a you know a line it's like a smiley mm -hmm. face like sure that's like that's it's not it doesn't suggest anyone but you could you know you could draw the head a certain shape you could draw the eyes a certain distance apart or mm -hmm. like this the mouth in a 
different way. I don't know. There there are like certain ways you could you could make that look more like a person. I don't I don't know if I don't know if that's relevant at all or if it's just like a random. Well, that may be like at a certain point, like uh, you were saying earlier, that a smiley face that could be anyone is maybe even less relatable than like uh, something with a little bit more detail, but something with a lot more detail is much less relatable. And so that maybe there's like finding a balance of how much detail can you include that will be relevant to other people such that it maximizes how uh relatable that is that's an interesting idea yeah i guess yeah maybe you could you could like i guess the um like uh if we're gonna think of like a musical example of that like um the oversimplification that's like completely unrelatable is like friday like rebecca black's <laughs> friday um you know where it's like oh this is like so overly generalized that it's like irrelevant to basically everybody um even though i do love that song <laughs> yeah no that's actually really interesting because it ties back to something you were saying earlier with the uh historic progression of you know these uh technologies that people got to uh more accurately portray the world in art mm -hmm. and that at a certain point we hit the whole postmodernism and uh abstract thing and the uh, uh impressionism where people are maybe starting to deviate from those tools but maybe if you think like what was the culture like that fomented those deviations like why did people think that was a necessary thing and maybe it's that you have a medium that is saturated by techniques that are just techniques and it you have you know basically technicians who are just following these procedures and creating art but the or, or creating depictions but what they're depicting is completely removed and alien from the actual thing that they're quote unquote trying to depict you know it's like you can have very skilled uh representation but it could be lifeless it could not capture anything of the essence whereas that cave painting is capturing it you know it's like what are you drawing are you drawing that animal that you know to your core or are you drawing this process of drawing that happens to kind of look like an animal maybe <clears throat> it has all the parts of an animal yeah, I think that's a really good question. Uh, I like the idea of drawing the process of drawing. I think that that's that really hits on, for me personally. Really hits on something. Um, uh, yeah, and you know maybe it, it's it's you can maybe you can chalk it up to like uh, like cultural trends or people were just like uh, you could even be really jaded about it and be like oh well. Like there was already the best, uh, you know, just like David already, you know, or Michelangelo already sculpted the David. So we got to move on, you know, mm -hmm. uh, like you're not going to top it. So like do something else, you know. Um, um, but also uh, I think that idea of like, um, just like drawing the idea of drawing um, is, is what a lot of the, um, like very early, like the early 20, like even like late 19th century, but like early 20th century uh, abstract artists were doing um, where they're, they're kind of starting to get at this idea of um, uh, like, you know, what, yeah, what, what, what am I doing when I'm painting? 
right? What, okay, well, what I'm actually doing is I'm just like rubbing like vegetable fats and dirt onto a flat surface. And, um, you know, so uh, what does, uh, what does that mean in the, you know, in the, in the, in this, this current cultural context, like, um, why am I doing this? Um, and, uh, <laughs> with, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to say as to like why anybody felt the need to do that. <laughs> um, you know, um, but I certainly think that like the motives are super interesting. Um, and, um, you know, I think that a lot, a lot, maybe, I don't know, maybe a lot of it was just like about, uh, getting at system, other systems of organization, um, and trying to, as you say, like draw the act of drawing, right. And kind of, uh, represent a, uh, um, a system of like a heuridic or a system of organization rather than like representing like a, a specific figure or a specific subject. If you're enjoying what you're listening to so far and you want to support us somehow, there's lots of ways you can do that. You can go follow us on Facebook or Instagram or visit us online at postwavepodcast.com or send us a nice email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on your podcasting platform of choice. We're on pretty much everyone out there. Give us a nice review if you're on a platform that supports that or a five-star rating. Thanks for listening. Something, something though that that's maybe interesting. You talk about Eric. Um, so, like, if if we're kind of think if we're if we're thinking of this as like a grand narrative where there's like this, um, and again, this is like fixed in like the uh, like the Western canon pers canonicals perspective of the like, the narrative of art history, which is that like there the idea that there even is a narrative that is like somehow progressing and uh, it, quote unquote improvement or something like that. Um, because uh, obviously, like, like visual culture doesn't die; it just like goes in and out of fashion. Um, and you know, the same time that there were all of these like spectacularly uh, uh, proficient academic painters, like that are creating like beautiful portraits and still lives and genre paintings and things like that, there's also like still um, like you know uh cultures that are creating the same kind of uh like body paintings or textile patterns or uh you know whatever it is that they've been doing for thousands and thousands of years right they're still doing that so it's like um i think that's one of the things that's really fascinating about like our anything that happens in the like the realm of artistic uh enterprise or artistic endeavor in general is that like um it doesn't go away. We're just, we just come up with new technology or new tools. Um, and so like in a way, like, you know, painting, like paint is just a like 40,000 year old imaging technology that is now like entirely obsolete, 
um, but we still use it because it's cool. It's still it's still great. It still works, right? Um, but if you're thinking about it as like purely an imaging technology, it's like you know obsolete for hundreds of years. Um, uh, but I think that you know if we're talking about like why did why was there this kind of like shift in uh, uh, why why did why did like progress you know quote unquote progress go from like ascending like the the mountain of uh, representation and ascending this mountain of like realism uh, to something that was like then non objective or like just like you know black canvases or color field painting or uh, like mm -hmm. abstract expressionism or something like that um, yeah. the the thing that I think about all the time is. Um, the uh, actually like uh, this 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 great essay that was about the origins of kindergarten, um, and how um, the the guy uh, I'm gonna forget his name um, who created kindergarten the actual like the original like German manifestation of it. Um, uh, kindergarten was actually something that he did uh, later in his life. Um, the the first part of his career was uh, developing the system through which we. Uh, classify and organize crystal structures. Um, so all of the terminology that goes into identifying like literally anything that has a crystal structure um, was developed by this one guy. And he, he kind of built out this field. Um, and so really when you kind of think about what that is, it's like he's, he's taking um, these like organically uh, uh, growing objects and kind of breaking them down and be like okay these ones have six facets these ones have eight facets these ones cleave bilaterally these ones do not um like the these have uh this kind of um uh like oh, these ones are opaque these ones and he's coming up with all these different words and like language to kind of to to categorize and classify these organic objects right um and then later in his life he developed kindergarten um, and so there's this really interesting idea um, that I that I like a lot um, that uh, that essentially like the first generation of people that really grew up in the atmosphere of kindergarten, um, which is like that early 20th century, like early childhood education, were kind of being instilled with these ideas um, of that way of kind of uh, abstracting and categorizing the natural world. Um, and that, that was something that was inherent in the way that we were doing early childhood education, like during the very beginning of the 20th century. Um, and that that is why we have this artistic shift towards that. Hmm. Um, and that we're basically like, we were kind of, uh, uh, priming this entire generation of children from a very young age, um, to view the world, uh, kind of from its fundamental abstractions um, and, and to really see like, okay, so there's, there's a, uh, here's all of these different trees. What's similar about all these different trees, right? And so how are those things structured? Um, and that that was something that kind of translates over time into, um, you know, into uh, like what we know as like uh, 20th century abstract art which I think is a, a really cool idea. Yeah. Um, that I'm a hundred percent there for. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. It's wild to think about how a person's mind develops from the, the like when they're in kindergarten to when they're an adult producing things like art, just the, the, just so much time 
and you know so spent soaking up information and, and like processing that information in a certain mm -hmm. way but yeah it all starts in kindergarten with you learning your shapes and your colors and what trees look like 100 percent, and how to write you know it's like it's yeah it's crazy that 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 whole process is continuous basically yeah you know yeah absolutely absolutely um yeah yeah i think ian mcgillchrist would have a good uh you'd like this idea <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it, it it and I think I think that that shows up in a lot of ways that like uh, uh like Jackson Pollock is like a, a a good a good person to talk about. Um while he like certainly was not the first person doing what we kind of know him to do like the big splattery drip paintings. Um that you know, we the way that we talk about those paintings um is uh was kind of steeped in this language of like hyper masculine expression and like raw emotion and if you kind of read a lot of like the the writings that were that like primarily by clement greenberg who was a, a really predominant critic at the time you read his writings about the abstract expressionist and it's like this very like um uh like you know like hemingway-esque uh, my kind of machismo everything's like very emotionally driven and visceral and you know gut and internal and 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 felt and primal right um and uh and that's supposed to be somehow like a a uh completely uh pure expression like a pure, pure artistic expression that that's not uh like a, a pure signal right it's not clouded by anything like that it's just a pure uh, translation of of like emotion to object um but the thing that's actually really funny about those paintings is they're actually hyper planned um and yeah and so this is this is why and this is and this is something that um that that pollock actually made a great effort during his career to obscure um and so you've probably you might have heard about um you know some instances of like pollock paintings being faked um and yeah. and um there was actually uh some software that was developed to identify real pollocks um that is uh as far as i know still like the go-to mechanism for identifying whether or not they're real um and uh and there's a few other things that are kind of funny like uh like some of like the fake ones have like the wrong brand of cigarette butt like in them or something like that because you would like smoke while he's painting and just like throw the butts on the anyway um but but so the thing about those paintings is that um they 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 look purely chaotic but like as we know like um creating randomness is super super hard for humans to do right um uh random numbers we all know like the computational problems of like coming up with randomness um and um so what you know you can't just make quote-unquote random marks and have something turn out like that it's impossible um so what actually the way that he actually made those paintings is he would lay the pan canvas down on the floor um and he would uh they're basically the the, the the paintings are polyrhythms is basically what they are um so he would lay out the canvas on the floor and then with a piece of chalk make like eight stations around the rectangle so like one at each corner and then like one halfway through on each side um or maybe there'd be 12 or 16 or something like that or maybe it'd be an odd number but anyway he would choose a number um and then he would have uh like he would choose like three actions and one of them would be the way he would always paint is he would dip this long stick into a bucket of paint and then drip it on the on the canvas so the actions might be like a spiral 
a like overhand like kind of slashing motion um and across the body thrust right um so he'd have those three actions the eight stations around it and he goes okay so now i've got three actions eight stations now i'm going to pick five colors and so i'm going to go and i'm going to take my white paint and i'm going to do at each station i'm going to go like white paint spiral motion overhand slashing motion uh cross body slashing motion then at the next station i'm gonna do the same thing i'm gonna do it in orange then at the next station i'm gonna do the same thing but i'm gonna do it in black and the next and so and he would take these different elements like the colors the motions and the stations and create rhythmic structures on top of one another and then just go in a circle around the canvas uh, wow. until he yeah, yeah so that's yeah uh, yeah so that, that's definitely color rhythms but it actually makes me think a lot of isorhythm eric do you remember what isorhythm is from our, yeah isn't that where you have like a, a meta rhythm that cuts across uh like uh a, a, across multiple bars that you have a, a repeating structure that phases against the 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 meter uh i don't no i think that that's more like polyrhythm uh, isorhythm is is you have uh a certain rhythm which I, i'm gonna get the terms mixed up probably um there's the talia and then there's the color and i believe the color is the pitches and the talia is the rhythm but if they're different uh if like the talia is five uh durations and the color is like seven pitches uh if you keep going they'll, they'll start to phase with like where which note is on which rhythm oh yeah 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 that thing um it reminds it, that reminds me of the, the yeah music. yeah yeah absolutely yeah 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 and it's really cool that we're bringing music into this because again this the the concept of something that looks like totally random but it's in fact highly planned is basically exactly how i think most people experience serialism i was i was just about yeah i was just about to mention like <laughs> Boulez or, or, or stockhausen or something because it is like the most precisely planned mapped out uh like mathematically constructed music and to most people it just sounds like it's just being made up you know on the spot <laughs> like a six-year-old banging on a piano that's funny yeah or yeah. just like li literally designed to be the most dissonant it could possibly be <laughs> yeah doing something i mean doing something yeah like that it requires it requires mastery right either way um yeah making something extremely uncomfortable <laughs> um, <laughs> requires uh requires proficiency for sure yeah yeah um yeah that's interesting and, and and so i think like in in you know for, for for me in that way with like like the pollock paintings um you know that's like a thing that we uh probably like subconsciously pick up on and that we really enjoy um in the, the same way that we like we talked a bit about like um uh like the patterns in islamic art um where maybe we we pick up on some of them as having seen them before like subconsciously somewhere else um and so we're drawn to them um and we might not be aware of it uh but that's like a a a hidden appeal kind of in the um in the work and maybe and maybe that's too maybe that's also true of like um uh like certain aspects like uh like the um like the diatonic sequence of like you know the ideas that like intervals are based off of like speech you know patterns or things like that where it's like this we're kind of we're, we're playing with these structures that we're already familiar with and they're kind of like obscured from us or something like that and that's why we find them so appealing 
Yeah, I know. I know just enough about music to like maybe talk about it a little bit. <laughs> I hope. I hope I'm getting some of this right. Um, no, no, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're right. Um, yeah, because I mean, I was thinking about that when you were talking about how like art, like is, you know, is outdated technology that we've had for thousands of years, but we still use it. I mean, if you think about the different musical patterns, like these diatonic scales, and uh, you, you, even there's like, you know, going back to the earliest recorded, uh, visually recorded music that we can de decipher is basically built around stale scales that are uh, analogous to what is used in like most pop music today. And like, yeah, you have these abstract, crazy, atonal technologies being developed, uh, techniques being developed, and but yeah, those like those musical technologies are not obsolete. They're they're still there. There's something about about music that uh, leans into the repetition. Like that's central to what the musical experience is. This thread that goes all the way back to earliest parts of history. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, th I think that, yeah, there's, um, uh, and I'm, I'm really tempted. This is, this is like the thing I keep coming back to. I'm really tempted too to like see that as something again, that's like inextricably linked to our, our physical bodies. Um, and that there's, uh, something about, um, like just repetitious action or or sounds that we find there's some reason that we find them like so so deeply deeply enchanting um and um that and that's i don't know maybe that's that's why in it even today like um like dancing like club style dancing is is in a way hearkening back to that where it's it's like it's super simple anybody can be involved in it and you just do it for hours mm. and and uh you can kind of you know there's maybe some ascension that can happen you know in in that state of just dancing to this super simple thing for until you're freaking exhausted um <laughs> and and there's like actually something really sublime that can happen like in that space uh yeah yeah that we that yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, like how, how many, I mean, going to a concert, I guess, is a similar thing, but how, yeah, how many experiences like that do you have in your life where you're just doing something physical, like only focused in the moment with a bunch of your friends, just completely, yeah, just completely in the moment and like focused on something that's very pretty, like very simple for a long time. Like how, in what other context do you do that? Mm -hmm. you know? Not, not many. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Never gets me. He knows I have a dirty mind. <laughs> hey, you asked. You asked whether in context. I did. I did. <laughs> I did ask that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think um yeah yeah and and it's interesting um do you feel like there is like i mean i i, I just kind of went through this like uh uh you know quote like n narrative of of uh like western art do you feel like there is uh 
for visual art at least do you feel like there's something similar that exists for um for music where there's kind of this uh it, it is from like my like layman's perspective there seems to be this like peak of just like orchestral opulence that kind of happens in like the like like romantic era um with like wagner or something um and then from that on out it's like we just like we're like it's like oh sh- 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 turn like turn it back turn it back a little bit like let's make it a little bit simpler like do you do you feel like there's there is like a narrative there and do you do you have an inkling as to like where that might come from or why that might be yeah yeah um so i think i, th- I think uh, maybe tell me if i'm i'm going down the wrong path but basically so by the time you get to wagner i mean people will talk about Wagner has all his issues, obviously, but yeah. uh, uh, have you heard of like the Tristan und Isolde prelude? No. So this is one of the operas he wrote, and the prelude uh, is often cited as the being the death of tonality, and tonality basically just meaning uh, complicated topic, obviously, but basically just the idea that there's you're in a key and there's one note that's more important than all the rest of the notes. There's like a hierarchy of this note is the key where it's the most important. It's yeah, home. sure, sure. The, the note five notes above in the scale is more important. Is you know, almost as important. Um, and so the the what's so crazy about that prelude is that it it just doesn't sound like it's in a key at all. It's all these very uh, ambiguous chords, mm-hmm. and and that's what a lot of a lot of like late nineteenth century classical music sounds like. It's like a lot of a lot of floaty sounding chords, dominant chords that aren't don't really sound like they're. Um, I mean, obviously, depending on the composer, depending on where you are, obviously there were still like very, very uh, more conservative composers out there. But it was it was all music that was was becoming so saturated with these kind of floating harmonies and often chords that were like stacked up. You know, a a basic a, the mo- the smallest chord would just have like three notes, right? It would be a yeah. triad. Um, and by the end of the nineteenth century, they're experimenting with these notes that are like you know they'd be like seven notes stacked on top of each mm-hmm. other. Um, you know, with like nines, elevens, and thirteens, like would be used in jazz harmony, yeah. and it's just like so saturated and so floaty and so ambiguous. I think the one uh, one of the one of the reasons that twelve tone technique came about was to kind of like take a step beyond that because they, it, I think they felt like it just kind of it was, tonality had gone as far as it could go, and it was just kind of bloated or something, and so they were just they were looking for a way to to re re think of things in, in just a completely new paradigm i guess without without any any hierarchies and of course the, the system they come up with is like so strict and limited that it <laughs> i mean I, there there is some total tone music i like but it's I, I don't think it really like solves the the problem that they thought there was with tonality what do you, what do you mean when you say know. 12 tone what do you mean is that oh so basically um so the, the in Western music we divide up the the octave. Yeah, there's there's um, twelve. Yeah, yeah. And an octave would just be like da, da. so like two notes that we would say sound like the same yeah. note, just yep. higher yep. or lower. Um, so there's like twelve different keys on the piano, in white and black included, yep. Yep. right? Um, and so twelve tone music basically says we're gonna the music is to be based around instead of a scale, it's gonna be based around a certain ordering of these twelve pitches, and that's called the row. Huh. And so it's just a sequence and you use up all 12 before you go back basically is the rule. Um, oh, wow. And then you can do things with that, like invert it, you know, you could, or I'm going to get my terms mixed up. Retrograde would be good to go backwards, mm-hmm. right? Invert it would be to just jump in the opposite direction mm-hmm. from where you were jumping before. 
and then you can do the retrograde inversion, which is both. Um, so that, that's kind of 12 time music. And then you can, you know, you can start doing cool things with like three note chords and six note chords. And cause you know, th three, three times four is 12, six times two is 12. So you can get some cool, like if you layer the row on top of itself, you can get some cool harmonies that happen. Exacordal combinatoriality. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> It's actually a legit music theory. <laughs> yeah, I went to music school. <laughs> um, that's interesting. I, I had never um, the the yeah the the music theory that I that I had education that I had was uh, you know was was I suppose I guess you would I guess now that I would maybe know what to call it I would say it's all tonalist um, you know probably built around <laughs> built around the wheel of fifths and yeah and and. Um, yeah, lots of lots of jazz voicing and that kind of stuff, which I guess is pretty yeah. typical. Um, yeah. But I've, I've never heard of that idea of twelve tonal uh, like planning or structuring. That's super interesting. Um, yeah, maybe you can see why I thought about that when you brought up Pollock planning out his. Yeah, that's super super interesting. Yeah, yeah, um, and I guess what I what I was even thinking about that is so so like Schoenberg came up with that in like the nineteen twenties, I mm -hmm. think, early nineteen hundreds. And then, like thirty years later, those guys—I think either Eric and I mentioned um, Pierre Boulez and Karl Heinz Schockhausen—they did that with every parameter. <laughs> so, like, there's a there's a row of dynamics, there's a row of uh, articulation, there's a row of uh, uh, duration, like note mm -hmm. duration, <laughs> and then uh, same kind of thing. Just the music is those overlapping rows used in an interesting way and like inverted. Super and, interesting. Yeah, it's wild. That's yeah. <laughs> I think it's really I think it's really interesting how um it, you know we it, it, to kind of go back to like the um uh the influence of technology on like the way that we're creating these things um the way that we were kind of like playing with fire before we knew what it was um in a lot of ways like and I think about like in um uh like in in visual art for example like we were all um we were all um you know we were you know creating theories of color and like ways to organize color um before we knew how light worked right um which is like the fundamental building block of color right and 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 similarly with music we had these ideas of like what is musical structure and how to do it before we really understood like wave theory or like what actually mm -hmm. makes a a tone or something like that and so i, I think it's yeah. super interesting that we like as human beings were playing with these things before we understood them and kind of like intuitively navigated them for like yeah. millennia you know before yeah. we actually were like totally. were able to objectively understand them which is super interesting yeah yeah yeah, I, I always love telling my telling my students like I, I I like to teach them about the harmonic series pretty early on just because it's it it's never it's never in any like music method book ever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like hey, here's what the harmonic series is. Um, but you know, kids can count. They they adults you know look at the idea. Um, but yeah, I just I, I always love telling people that when you're you're listening music your to music, your brain is just doing math really quickly without you realizing it because it's calculating the fr the ratio between the frequencies and telling you whether it sounds good or not. Yeah, which is it's just math you know yeah yeah super interesting um and it's interesting this kind of touches back to and i think uh you guys you had briefly mentioned in the, the previous episode about um this idea of like mathematics being uh 
uh, perhaps like a, like a, a the purest abstraction of of something, um, uh, which I think is a pretty interesting idea. Um, I, I'm reminded of um, do you, do you guys know the uh, XKCD? Do you know that comic? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. there's yeah. this this freaking classic XKCD comic where there's like this line of this line of scientists, right? And on like one end, there's guys like he's just like uh. You know, he's like, uh, I'm a, I'm a biologist. Like, I know how the world works. And the chemist is like, biology. That's just applied chemistry. And the chem, then you know, behind me, the it's like a physicist is like, chemistry. That's just applied physics. And then like, way at the other end of the page, other end of the page is a guy who's like, uh, hey guys, uh, I'm a mathematician. You know, like, uh, it's just that's it's everything <laughs> like um, which I think is like a pretty you know a pretty interesting perspective on it all. Um, yeah um yeah Yeah. i don't know if i don't know if i mentioned it last time but the the so niels bohr is the guy who came up with the the bohr's model of the atom that we all learned in school where there's like the nucleus at the center and every all the electrons are in like circular orbitals around everything um and yeah we've known for a lot of everyone learns that that's not actually how it is but it's a useful abstraction right um and you know even when you go on and learn in if you take like chemistry and in college you learned about like the different or probably ap chemistry which i didn't take but um you learn about like the different shapes of the orbitals like they're actually i mean what i think like the first orbital like the s orbital is is like a sphere but then the p orbital which is the next one is like a dump it's like a dumbbell shape or something it's like or it's like it's like an hourglass shape is actually more what it's like Um, oh interesting see i I went to art school and they were like here's a science class that has lots of pictures uh so i didn't didn't get that (laughs) that's super interesting though um yeah 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 but then I think I think so I think Niels Bohr's son son is a uh, part of particle physicist some kind of physicist and he he's basically said yeah I mean even that more like nuanced complicated picture of it doesn't really like explain it like it, it it's just you kind of have to accept that it's just math like that's it's just math that's it's it's working the way it does because of, of mm-hmm. math and mm-hmm. I, I think that's pretty that's pretty profound and and wild I mean I think it's I think it's true I mean. Um, yeah. yeah, it depends how you define. define well, math. I think it's interesting. I mean, I, so it's it, it, it's really tempting. I think often to like turn to mathematics to uh, to to try to find like a you know a grand like unifying perspective on things. Um, uh, but as as like maybe you kind of just like hinted at like when you it's it's helpful up to a point and then as you like, get increasingly zoom in further and further and further everything kind of becomes this like squishy soup of probability um and and for me that that's kind of uh maybe a an indicator that um that again like uh mathematics is just another example of like our fixed perspective um and that's the way that like our brains process things and so that's the that's mm-hmm. the reality that we try to impose upon everything um and it's super it's it's pretty good you know it is it is it works it's kind of like you were saying with like with like the with the um uh the 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 tones or tuning the instrument like it it works pretty well you know is it perfect no but like for our purposes is it doing what we need it to like yeah for the most part you know um Mm -hmm. and i i just i i i'm i'm always fascinated by like one like the elegance that you can kind of find through um through mathematics but then i'm also like to have this little like whisper of of uh curiosity of like if it's just something that like we've conveniently 
uh, we're conveniently lying to ourselves or like it's it's like the um the thing that we're all agreeing is how it works but it doesn't really matter <laughs> i'm not sure yeah that communal like a uh, dream dream uh consensus sure yeah yeah absolutely absolutely yeah 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 well i think that kind of uh brings us full circle sure. bringing, yeah. it, bringing it back to abstraction back to math maybe at the core of things maybe not abstract patterns and pulling out patterns from the world and how that relates to our our experience of, of perceiving and of, of existing in this world well, anyway walker i want to thank you so much for coming on the show with us yeah it's been awesome really really enjoyed this conversation with you today yeah glad glad to be a part of it uh, I, I always feel like every time we end up talking there's like there's like four or five other things that we like that I really want to like continue talking to you guys about. Um, so yeah, yeah. let's do it. Uh, yeah. any, anytime. I'd love to tell you yeah, anytime. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that was super fascinating. Yeah. Ever since I, I, I learned you were an artist and you went to art school and everything, I've always just wanted to like pick your brain about art history. And that was just like every, everything I hoped it would be. So Perfect. Awesome. Oh, cool. So cool. <laughs> oh, glad, glad. Cool guys. Well, um, yeah, I, uh, hopefully I'll, I'll come back again some other time. Yeah.